Hello there, fair podcast listener, and welcome to this latest edition of the Emotion of Web podcast. Uh, I tried a new way of recording this week, and safe to say I need to improve. So I've got a mixer now, which I was very excited about, where I can fade my mic up and fade my mic down, and um, I thought it would make uh, everything just a little bit more profesh or professional. Um, and what ended up happening is I kept forgetting to put my mic up or I'd put my mic up too high and my levels were all over the place. So when you listen to this episode, some bits will be really clear. Some bits you'll hear me as a faint voice in the background. Um, the main thing is, though, you can hear our guest all the way through really, really clearly. And it's their story that's important. So uh, for the keen eared listener, um, apologies that my levels are a bit all over the place. But uh, the main thing is you get to hear the guest story loud and clear. So... Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Emotional Work Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. Now today's episode has the potential to be a hard listen. As my guest today, who's Katrina Collier, has talking about her experiences in the workplace as with what she describes as being an unhealed victim of child abuse. Now that, as I said, can be a hard listen or sensitive topic for some people. So if you are affected by anything that we talk about in the podcast today, then in the show notes there will be links to resources and support groups and places where you can go to get some help and support. And if you need some urgent help, or if you're feeling particularly vulnerable, then you can always contact the Samaritans on 116123. So what's important to me today is that you, as the fair listener, um, get to hear this important story that needs to be told, but also that you, um, that you fair listener, are, are taken care of and supported along the way. So let's get our guest on the air. So let's welcome to the Emotional Work Podcast, Katrina Collier. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And thank you for suggesting this as a, as a topic to explore. So I'm really, really grateful that you're being willing to, to share what, we, what we're going to talk about today. So thank you. Oh, no, you're welcome. All right. So as always with the Emotional Work Podcast, we begin with a, an innocuous and unexpected question. So this gives us a different way in to the conversation that we're going to go into. And Katrina has no idea what's going to come. So a while ago, I went to the big wide world of Twitter to incre- to increase my bank of um, innocuous yet unexpected questions. And today's question <laughs> comes from Mark Gilroy, or at that Mark Gilroy on Twitter. Uh, and his question is, what would you stop? Oh, sorry. What would you stockpile if you found out it was never going to be in existence anymore? Time. Time. Okay. Yeah, I was. I was between self care and time. <laughs> so, either one of those. <laughs> um, why? Or because it, don't you always feel like it's our most precious commodity and it's always running out? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'd. I'd always love for some more time. <laughs> and then and then self-care I think is because we don't put ourselves first often enough and therefore actually put other people in jeopardy because we run ourselves to the ground so yeah that's why I, I'm split exactly between the two so sorry Mark I've come up with two <laughs> typical of me <laughs> yeah so you went quite existential there right? uh, when I saw the question I went really practical and pragmatic like toilet paper <laughs> no no actually I didn't go toilet paper I went, yeah, I went for herbs. Um, and I, I couldn't narrow down to one in particular because I, I quite, I like quite a few different herbs. Rosemary, I think, is my favourite herb. But mm. um, yeah, I think 
don't think herbs in general they make such a difference to cooking different dishes that, that you know i enjoy making at home um, and if something was going to run out I, w- I would want to make sure that i had stockpiled as many herbs as i can so so that even though I'm, I may not be able to wipe my backside after the, um, you know, after enjoying those herbs, but at least I can enjoy what's going into my mouth, even if I'm not clean what's coming out. Exactly. All right. So I guess where I'd like to go next then is with the self-care bit, is that something that links to the topic we're going to talk about today? Oh, absolutely. Um, my mother, who is my child abuser, whether she likes to think so or not, is always like you're selfish you're selfish you're selfish and actually self-care isn't selfish you know they tell you on the plane don't they put the gas mask on yourself before you put it on your children um, or anyone that's dependent on you and it it is like that I, I chose to take myself out of the path of destruction so my being on the other side of the world and not in communication with both my parents is me protecting myself that is my self-care if she wants to see it as selfish, that's her choice, but it isn't. They're, to me, they're very, very different. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people, when you do go to take care of yourself, will say, oh, you're being selfish. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's completely related to today's topic. Um, and, you know, I'm off to Uganda again for Retract Charity next week. Yeah. I'm so excited. Well, actually, it's not for a couple of weeks, but I'm off next week. And um, it was one of the things that we talked about there as well. You know, these amazing carers who give, 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 but don't take care of themselves and then burn out. So it's it's so important that if you really do want to keep caring and doing the best for people, you must take care of yourself. And is it is it societal norms, do you think, that stop us doing that? Yeah, this the notion that it's selfish, that it's, the notion that it's selfish to do self-care... Is that a societal thing, do you think? I think it could be. Uh, I mean, obviously, it depends where you grow up. But, um, yeah, I actually do. I do think it is because, yeah, we're very quick to judge, aren't we? We're quick to go, oh, you're being selfish. Oh, you're blah, blah, blah. Well, are they or aren't they? (laughs) Um, And it's really, it's not for us to say. It's down to the individual. So, yeah, actually, yes, let's blame society. That's much easier <laughs> than blaming the individual who's being judgmental. <laughs> there's going to be both, isn't there? I mean, there's going to be aspects of the two. But, yeah, to so a certain degree, when I go swimming, it's an activity I've talked about in the podcast before I don't particularly enjoy. Mm. I'm better at it now, and I'm enjoying it more than I did, but than I used to, I guess. I still don't enjoy it as much as running. So, you know, I saw a runner out this morning and, and I went to yoga and as I was going back, um, I walked past somebody who was um, running and I had like a, a pang of running energy <laughs> that I wanted to be part of what he was doing. But but I will feel guilty, my wife being one, but other people as well. You say, oh, you managed to find time for a swim today. As if that's being... Yeah. The, the, yeah, the understanding of the overtone is you should be working or you should have... There's other jobs around the house that you should have done beyond that or, or in, in a bigger priority than that. But I know if I don't swim, it's not going to, A, it's not going to help my recovery, but also B, I'm going to be more grumpy as a result. Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes it's, you're in a funk and you might be present, like sitting at your desk, staring at your screen or whatever it is that you're doing. You know, you're present, but you're not because yeah. you, you're mentally, you're not there. You, you're upset, you're you're angry, you're frustrated, you're whatever, you're... and actually, I mean, I often find just going outside, like I'll often go and sit and chat to the dogs because they don't answer back or I'll go and sit outside or you know just moving away and my entire energy shifts and therefore my mood shifts so yeah I understand the 
the comment because perhaps she would like you to be washing the dishes up or something as well as going for the swim. You know, I, I kind of get where she's coming from, but at the same time, I guess it's for her to understand that if you didn't do that, perhaps that you would be in a, in a foul temper and then that would impact her as well. Um, and I, again, I think it just comes down to, I think we, we just need to look beyond, you know, the initial. And also I think sometimes your reaction. So if, if you said, if, if I was in that situation and you'd gone and done that and you perhaps not hoovered or, you know, taken the bin out or whatever you hadn't done, I think it's for me to take a breath and go, okay, right a minute, who am I annoyed with here? And, and why am I feeling this way? And what is this really about? <laughs> you know, and just take a moment. And I think rather than be quick to throw a comment. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's hard to do in the moment. Could be why I'm divorced. <laughs> so one of my mantras, um, or one of the phrases that I say to myself a lot, is there's always more going on. Um, or, or it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, there's always more going on than you can see or you can think or yeah. you can hear. And I think with with this topic... I think the people that are in my inner fold are fully aware. I'm fairly open about the child abuse um, because I, I'm, I'm a survivor of it or a victor over it, as my gorgeous friend Sue Ingram says. Um, mm, but that's a nice friend. I've not heard yeah, that she said, you're a victor over it. And she bought me this stunning candle, um, which was all about that as well. It's, it's beautiful. All the, the oils that are in it are all about being a victor over, not a victim. It was, yeah. But I think a lot of people have met me healed and they've met me as, you know, the face of Disrupt HR and this, you know, vibrant person who's very much centred, has self-care, has self-love, has all the stuff I didn't have. And a lot of people don't, can't actually believe it um, because they didn't see it. But then also, I, because some of my school friends had no idea. I, mean, I know Julia, who um, I've known for, wow, let's not do the maths on that well over 30 years, um, and she was saying, she actually went and asked my other friend Louise and said, did you know? Like, I just didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't know, because it was so beautifully hidden, because it was very much like, uh, you know, Mrs. Bucket, you know, Mrs. Bouquet, yeah, keeping yeah, up appearances, yeah. 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 yeah, we were so that, we were the so white middle class, North Shore, Sydney, but, you know, in a wealthy area, hiding everything behind the doors. Um, it, was, it was quite extraordinary. So I don't quite know why I went onto that train of thought, but I went there. <laughs> so when it was hidden, yeah, what was that like for you? I think because so so mum emotionally and physically abused us. The physical is like a, a, in a way easier to get over than the emotional. Um, and, and when it's hidden, it's like you don't you don't believe it's real, and you normalise like you normalise to cope with it. So that was. That was all I knew from this particular incident that happened when I was three years of age. That is all I knew was what I was living. Um, but you, f you feel like you're not being heard. And I think it's, you know, those that know me know I train, so I speak. I stand on stage, so I speak. I run events that give people the opportunity to speak. I'm doing my show this afternoon that allows people to speak. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's very important to me now you know, as a 40-something-year-old rather than then when I couldn't, I couldn't talk, no one listened. My, my father didn't listen. My father just said, oh, you can't change your mother, um, you know, and, and there was no protection. There was nobody listening. And, it, and even the school, like I saw reading my report card as an adult was really quite fascinating. And it, it, sh it shows in there. It says she needs more support on the home front. 
Like it literally has those words in there. And I, I didn't have that. I used to go home terrified to give them my report card because I would always get a beating for it and I'd always be in trouble. Um, I used to physically shake. But it was interesting to see that the school knew. But of course, we're talking the 70s and the 80s, you know, it's not like now. The school might have actually said, like, what's going on? But they didn't. So, I, I mean, at different time, things have progressed, which is good. <laughs> and so, so you said you weren't heard, or, no, or nobody listened, mm. which one it was. Mm. When did that change then? Probably once I left home. So I left home finally at 21 because she'd undermined my self-esteem so much I just stayed. Um, she always told me I'd fail once I left. Um, and there have been some monumental failures, but nothing I haven't got past. Um, you know, who hasn't? Um, when did I really... I think I really started to be heard once I started to get help. So I really fell into therapy stroke coaching at around 40 and I fell into it. Believe me, I did not know I was going into it because if I had, I probably wouldn't have gone. Um, well, just because I was so defensive. So there was a specific incident that happened when I was three years of age. And from that time, I was protecting myself. So I was pretty well like little, you know, on edge, full guards up. You couldn't say anything to me, Phil, literally nothing. And I would just like, defend myself so I probably was saying stuff but I doubt anybody was taking it on board they'd be like oh she's off on a rant again and I was very negative and I was very um angry and I didn't have many friends um I was very prickly I was like look at cactuses and go oh yeah that was me <laughs> yeah I was that um and and I and I still look at them with a sort of affection because that's how I was I was so prickly um so I, the, the reason I say I fell into it was because I had been in this contract. The guy was a narcissist, of course. The thing is, when you grow up with a narcissist, you then attract more in your life until you finally learn the lesson to stop being the codependent. So my boss was a narcissist. Um, he was doing something completely unreasonable. I got fired on the most ridiculous grounds. Um, that it, it wouldn't even stand up if I bothered to take it to a tribunal. But anyway, we parted ways. And I thought, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to set up the searchologist and do this dream thing I've had going in my head for two years or if I want to just go and get a job. And I went to, so I was actually talking to my nutritionist and she said, you must go and talk to Michelle Zelly. And Michelle is smack bang between a therapist and a coach, which is why I love her so much. She propels you forward. You do go, you have to look at the past. She herself has been through child abuse, so she understands it and can help because of that. She knows exactly where to guide you. Um, but, you know, we used Pia Melody techniques and Martini and you name it. But when I sat there in that very first session with her, I thought I was talking about my career. And, and we were talking about something like walking the dogs through the village. <laughs> and I went, oh, I get so annoyed when people get in my way. And she went, oh, hang on a minute. Let's just unravel that. And she just started unraveling everything. And it was like layers of an onion. We just started taking off. But she says, and she'll tell you today, that at that point, I was the most defensive client she'd ever had. She did not know in herself how she was going to break through. Because from three, I'd had to protect myself. And that's why when I was talking to you about, like, from a workplace point of view, if you can imagine people are trying to manage me, and you're saying anything, and I'm like either ripping your jugular out or sobbing. 
there was never anything in the middle. There's never like the reaction you get now. So, so going back to your original question about like the voice, it, it came, I think, once I started to be able to look at a hundred different ways that something could go, to be able to kind of go, oh, Phil just called me a bitch. Now, is that more a reflection on him or have I actually just done something to deserve that comment? You know, and I just sort of like breathe through things rather than going, rah, rah, scream, yell, carry on, you know, and it's, and I think now, people are much more interested in hearing what I have to say because I, I'm coming ev at everything from self-love, self-care and love for them and protection for them and a caring angle on everything, not just defensiveness, not from fear. I mean, it was just constant fear. And if you don't mind me asking, fear of? Um, fear of being in trouble um, is probably the biggest one I have and still have. Um, it's, it's a really tough one. Fear of rejection for a very, very long time. Um, it's quite interesting because my ex-husband, Richard, who I very strangely flat with, but we got on great. Um, he also still has fear of being in trouble. It's a tough one to let go of. Um, so I do crazy stuff. Like I'll deliver amazing training and I don't want to hear what the feedback is because I'm terrified it won't be great. Even though I know that they enjoyed it because I could tell by looking at them. They're like, oh, don't let me know. Don't let me know. Don't let me know. Oh, they might. And you know, like crazy stuff I'm, i got a letter from our estate agent about the gdpr yeah, yeah. and yeah. i just put carpet down and i saw the letter outside and i'm like oh my god they're going to evict us like literally panic fear and it's like okay katrina like this could be a letter about three thousand things calm down and it's yeah. it's but from a work point of view that still impacts me um fear of rejection was was of course you know because i had been rejected my whole life um mum is incapable of loving in a healthy manner due to the stuff that she's been through. Um, my father as well. So we weren't loved, supported and protected in a healthy way, um, all four of us. And then we were cleverly isolated from each other as well. So we actually, four of us in the house growing up in little silos. So we... And when you say the four of us, is that... So my eldest brother and sister, who are my half-brother and sister from my mum's first marriage, and, and my full-blood brother, Darren, and myself... And then mum and dad. Okay. So there were, yeah, four of us, but all in silos. So we weren't, we didn't support each other. And I think that was one of the most fascinating things about going to Uganda was seeing, going out to the slums. And I remember um, Donna Hewitson and I, we, we didn't feel anything compared to what other people were feeling. We were just like, oh yeah, you know, okay. Because we saw the interplay and I very much saw the older taking care of the younger and the, the bigger, the smaller, and they were teamwork. And I looked at that and went, well, we sure as hell didn't have that in my house. <laughs> it was, and it was a really eye-opening. Yeah, that entire trip was very, very healing for me um, because of that. Because it was like, ah, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, like, not to... Yeah. And never to use it as an excuse, because I will never say, oh, well, I'm going to be obnoxious to everybody on this planet because I've had child abuse. It's more like, okay, it also gave me all of my strengths and I went through it and that's it. That's what it was. Let's just move on, you know, and, and then be aware when it's sabotaging my work. Just, you know, all being managed for that matter, which is what we were initially going to talk about, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I've gone off on a tangent as always. <laughs> so just to check the timeline, 20 when you left home. Yeah. And then at 40, the sacking happened. Yeah. Which then led you on to getting, getting help. 
I don't necessarily want to unpick everything, but mm. but that bit in between, I guess, is well, is where I want to focus on today. How did that manifest itself in the workplace? Yeah. How did that manifest itself in the kind of interactions and relationships you had in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. Because you talked about, you know, either you were ripping the juggler out or you were in serious. I mean, yeah, I, I just was... Ugh. I was monumentally difficult. I mean, one, I had extremely high expectations of for, of other people and myself because that comes from fear of being in trouble. You, 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 it's almost like an OCD kind of thing, you know. You just deliver beyond so no one can criticise it. And then you... Is that like a perfection thing? Yeah. And then you expect other people to do the same. And of course they don't because we're all human and we're all perfectly imperfect. Um, so that makes you like really just not great to be around. And then um, I was very blunt. Um, surprisingly, everyone still calls me blunt, which I find really odd because I'm like, I'm so not blunt compared to how I was. <laughs> You just, I must have been really bad. Um, and I'm sure there's a few people who know me on this just laughing when I'm saying that because I can be very direct. But I was just, I was just, I was always coming from anger and frustration and, and stuff like that. But I think the worst things I used to find were these annual appraisals. Okay. I mean, obviously we all know how much they suck anyway. Yes. But they'd wait all year. And they'd come into this meeting with me where I'm already on the defensive because I'm terrified I'm going to get fired. And this is like your report card from school moment again. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, all of that's coming up. I'm not shaking in fear, thank goodness, but um, I'm still like, oh God, here we go. And it wouldn't matter how they went about it. I, it would. It just literally wouldn't matter unless it was full of praise, which of course it wasn't because they'd be like, well, you know, you're a bit abrupt with the staff and that would be what I'd get. So I'd never get an example of how, of where I was and how I could improve or anything like that. I'd just get very abrupt with the staff. Um, and then, so they'd give you sort of just statements, which were so unhelpful. But the trouble is, because of my, my inner child would be so damn terrified that out would come the inner teen and just literally go for either bawling my eyes out or being extremely rude, very defensive, like literally ripping your jugular out. Mm. And of course, as the manager, I mean, now I look back like with quite a lot of embarrassment, to be honest, I think how the hell would the manager cope in that situation? I truly feel there are so many people that are walking around in what I call inner teens. So the way my therapy worked was you've got inner child, inner teen and functional adult. Mm -hmm. Right now, a functional adult is talking to you because my inner child is very, very calm. I'm centered. I'm grounded. She's feeling safe and secure. If she's not, the inner teen comes out. That's that. You know, sometimes when you just get really angry and you're storming around and you're slamming doors and you're carrying on and you're kind of like, in a way, you're kind of going, why am I being like this? But that's what's going on. There's, there's something that upset your inner child and she doesn't feel like the functional adult's there. So out comes this teenager. But there are a lot of people that are permanently in inner teen in the workplace because they don't, they haven't been through the help. Mm. Their bosses don't understand that they've had that kind of a childhood or they haven't been set up for life correctly. Um, and can I just caveat on that? There is having a shitty childhood and then there's having a really shitty childhood that is child abuse. I know everyone sort of thinks, oh, let's just blame our parents for everything. I do appreciate there is no manual for parenting. Um, I've only parented four-legged children, so I do understand all of that. Um, but I am talking specifically about child abuse. And, and you know, there are plenty of places you can go to find out exactly what that is um, and what that includes mm -hmm. um, but children that aren't set up to have a functional adulthood you know 
can be very, very difficult to manage. And I think there's a lot in the workplace. And I don't know that managers are taught how to handle that. Yeah. I'm certainly not the expert to teach that. I'm just more giving empathy for what, what they went through. And I think in a way, yeah, there, there are risks that it gets all a bit reduced and it goes a bit reductionist and it just gets into managing difficult people or managing difficult behaviour or managing difficult conversations. Mm. You know, somebody... You, uh, shuts down or goes quiet or, or responds with surprise it's almost yeah yeah that it, it's just reduced down to those different kind of caricatures i guess or those prototypical views of mm. of it oh and then oh here's some strategies to to calm them down or to yeah we don't want them to have any emotion and i, I sort of feel really it, I, I would be concerned if managers were taught how to open someone up in in some respects because they wouldn't have the skills to be able to therefore handle the situation of what might come up. Yeah, exactly. But I think what I was more thinking as well, you know, in this, say the US where they've got 4% unemployment, so they're struggling to hire. And here in the UK, thanks to Brexit, God knows, you know, what we're doing to ourselves. It is also becoming tough to hire uh, or to recruit. And obviously that's my space I'm in. But you think about, so, for example, I was talking to someone who shall, shall remain nameless, who is in chronic pain. And her boss will not allow her to work flexibly. She's only a few months into the job, which is where the problem comes in, unfortunately. Yep. She, she doesn't have a leg to stand on at this point. But it, it's frustrating because the option could be to work, flex, to work remotely, to just come into the office two days a week, all this kind of stuff. So we'll do this stuff. But sometimes I think you need to look and go, okay, that Collier, she's got potential... But you know what? Maybe we need to invest in her and get her some help, be it some coaching, be it some outside support, be it psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever it is. You just think about if you help that person heal, how loyal they'd be. If you allow that person to work flexibly, how much they, how loyal they'll be and stay. Everyone's complaining about retention. So it's like, well, maybe if you do shift how you invest in your people, what, what's going to happen? Well, one, I wouldn't have been that rotten egg or that rotten apple ruining the barrel because that's what I was doing with my negativity so that would have reduced and therefore everyone else would have felt more productive I'd have been more productive just by having do you know what we're going to get a coach in just get someone in to help her give her the the skills and what do you think stops that happening then oh bank balance (laughs) like the finance the finance director (laughs) you know it it not being in the right hands I don't know it's too fluffy (laughs) god I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's funny because, you know, with my day job, obviously with the social recruiting, it, the world has changed so fast, hasn't it? It, it? You look at when I started out in my career, let's go with 25 years ago because that sounds so much healthier than what the actual figure is. Okay. You, you couldn't go online and search for HR manager jobs London and see 3 million appear. <laughs> I'm exaggerating on the number. But you couldn't do that. So therefore, my boss and the first branch of the bank, that I, w- I was worked in a bank initially because I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. He used to make the second in charge throw up at lunchtime because he was such an asshole. And nobody could do anything about it because there was no transparency. So there was two, people stayed. Whereas now, people would go and read Glassdoor reviews and Indeed reviews and Kanuna reviews and they would they would talk to people who work there and they would go, oh, you know what, no, that's not the place for me and keep looking and find other jobs and it's all right there on the internet. So I think 
it is shifting and, and companies are trying harder to look after their staff and, and give them the help. But sometimes I'm just so far ahead of the curve on that that I forget <laughs> and I'll come across a company that will be like, no, you can't even just work from home. Mm-hmm. I, I know you're in chronic pain, but you have to come in. Well, why? I can do my job at home. No, you have to come in. Presenteeism, you know, yeah. old school thinking. So it's, it, it is shifting, but a, a lot of the time I think it comes down to just old school thinking the bank balance, you know, the financial director going, no, we can't invest in our people like that. Cut budgets. Mm. Do you know? So the annual appraisal was a, mm. I guess, a challenge for you. Mm. Something that you knew you were going to find tough. Yeah. From a day-to-day kind of point of view then, or day-to-day operational management perspective, how did... How did you carrying what you carried with you, mm. as you described it as being, you know, un- unhealed victim of child abuse? Yeah, gotcha. How would that manifest itself then in a in a kind of day to day thing? I I mean, like I, I said, you know, very negative, very difficult to be around. Um, if I didn't like you, you knew. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, so if I didn't respect my colleagues, they knew. Um, which made it even more unpleasant. You know, I've, I've learned to mask things like that or to be a lot more tolerant of people, to be honest. Um, and I think from manager point of view, well, when, while you were saying that, I was thinking of the few that could manage me. Okay. And they were the ones I respected. They were the ones that saw through me. So they were the ones that saw the vulnerable child, not... The, the you know angry teenager so they were able to see this there's more here um and all age groups as well so you know so, some were younger than me one was especially quite a lot older than me and had children he had four children um and they therefore they they just co- coaxed me if that makes sense yeah but no nobody micromanaged me you couldn't like that was the worst thing you could do was really try and force me to do anything because I just wasn't having it you were better to let me go I was always very good at my job because I had the fear of being in trouble <laughs> so you over deliver so there was no issue there but there was as far as the teamwork and the cohesion and the, like all this stuff you need that that keeps the engagement up I, I was that rotten apple and those high expectations that you talked about mm. would they apply to your peers yeah if you're yeah. with somebody on a project or um, and they had something. They had something to deliver. Yes. And they didn't deliver it. That'd be pushing some buttons for you. Yeah, for sure. And it was one of the reasons that I never became a team leader. So when I worked in recruitment agency, and they were like, you know, thinking about that, I was always going no. So I at least had the capability of seeing that in myself, yes. because I would be like, if I said to Phil to do something and he didn't do it, I know I'm going to let rip because I don't know how to handle that situation. So the best thing I can do is not be in that situation. And even now I try and keep myself out of those situations because I get very frustrated and I still haven't quite healed that bit yet. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with it. Um, and, and then of course it's that, you know, that thing, isn't it? Where so many managers are just put in the position and not taught how to manage. Um, so yeah, I, I, that is one thing that definitely frustrates me. Um, I'm much better to be like working in a silo, working just on my stuff. I will happily pull people in on bits and pieces or help them more than happy, but I'm better just to me. This is my day. This is what I need to get done. I'm going to get it done. 
And would those expectations ever translate like up to your manager or up to your boss? You know, did they, you know, yeah, did they have to live up or not live up to those expectations as well? Um, strangely more at my peers. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason. I don't know why. Now that you made me think about it. Um, but of course I had expectations of my manager, which would be to, you know, support me mm-hmm. and do all that kind of stuff while I was being completely objectionable, mind you. But, <laughs> you know, you go, hypocrisy. Um, but of course that's the power of retrospect, isn't it? Being able to look at it now and go, oh my God, you expected them to support you while you're being obnoxious. Good one, Katrina. <laughs> so. Can I just take us back a little bit? Sure. To you know, some, to think about you know one or some of those people that did manage you well. Yeah. And you said that they saw you. They saw through the angry teen. Mm. You know, they saw the vulnerable child. That's kind of behind that. What was it that they were? What were they doing? What were they saying? How were they approaching it? What What was it that they did that you know that worked for you? Well, they were, I mean, they certainly weren't micromanaging. So they were they were guiding. They were having very calm conversations with me. It wasn't Katrina do this. I mean, literally, you say, Katrina, do this, I won't. <laughs> like, I'll go do the opposite. Maybe now I would, but then I wouldn't. It was, you know, I was so, I was just so, how dare you tell me what to do? <laughs> so, it's quite funny when you, it's quite funny when I think about it. Um, but I think because I had respect for them, I, you know, seeing them lead others and seeing what they were doing, that I would let them in. Okay. So they were let behind my barriers and therefore they could yeah, and it, so it's, it, I can't, yeah, it's, it's like I had this wall up. I mean, I call it a cactus because I just think it's easy. You know, like a cactus is yeah, mushy yeah. inside, right? And really, really quickly on the outside. But it's a choice whether I let them in or not. Um, and if I, if I respected them because of how I saw them be in the business, then they would get let in. And therefore, I was probably easier to manage in that respect until the annual appraisal. Because it's it, and and irrespective of who it was, that would still be a big challenge. Yeah, and probably the ones I respected probably got the tears more than the anger. Um, and I and I feel for them because I mean we're talking sobbing mess. We're not talking like having a couple of tears here. We're talking like bawling my eyes out <laughs> over the top. Like for them, they must have been sitting there going, "That is a really extreme reaction to what I'm saying." Mm. Um, and and I mean like sobbing proper. You know, yeah, and it's, and I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this subject was it's a sign for people. If they have somebody that reacts with extreme anger or extreme upset, there is way, way, way more going on. And then you have a choice. So you can just manage them out of the company or if you see that they've got potential, Mm. kind of go, okay, have we got the help within the company? No, we don't. We need to get some help. Let's get some help. She's worth it or he's worth it. Yeah. And and what will be the payback for that? Like the productivity, the loyalty, the retention, all of those great things. Yeah, there's a there's a phrase or a, an approach that um, you're talking about temperament um, and emotional temperament in particular, you know, which goes along the lines of um, is it the right emotion um, is it displayed at the right intensity? Um, oh no, that's no right isn't the right word. No, let me change that. So, mm. is it the appropriate emotion displayed at the appropriate intensity? 
for the appropriate duration for the stimulus that brought it forth. Um, and, and that, yeah. I think, is a you know is, is an interesting one to think about but the challenge can be that when when you're in it yeah when you're in it you can't think about it yourself yeah no m- mine was never appropriate mine was extreme and and that go on I, I think that's why I kind of wanted to share this was because you can you know the people that meet me now I just can't believe I was ever like that um because you know most of the people that I've you know gathered now if you know that's a strange way to put it but you know that are drawn to me now, don't see that because it's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of that is self-love. And it's once you get there, you're therefore less defensive. You know, it's like I was reading um, the, the life-affirming magic of not giving a fuck. Okay. And I, I, is that Sarah Knight? Yeah. Sarah Knight. Sarah Knight. I haven't read the other one. Um, and I was sitting on the train laughing out loud. Because it was, I mean, properly laughing. Because I'm just reading it going, yeah, I, I now at that point. Because I, ha- I have realized they're just opinions and I have so much self-love and self-appreciation that it's okay for someone to have a different opinion to mine and I can take it on board or not. And I don't react with the extreme anger and the hurt and the... And it's... it's... It, but it's hard to get there. It, it's very hard when from three years of age you're told how worthless you are, you're beaten, you're growing up in fear. You know, I had a fear to breathe. It was literally, you look the wrong way, you're in trouble. You breathe the wrong way, you're in trouble. It was just, you know, my mother would brew. I'd I'd annoy her in the morning over something trivial and I wouldn't cop it till the evening and I wouldn't even know what I'd done by that point. It was was brewing and this this constant. So because I felt worthless um, and of no value. So then you go into this situation where you're trying so hard to gain someone's approval when really what you needed to do was give it to yourself and give the self-love and the self-care to yourself that you're a kid. So I then went into my 20s where you still really are a kid, aren't you? <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I think it all starts to fall into place in your 30s. Still trying to do that in the workplace, trying to seek approval, but I was just so obnoxious at the same time, I was just losing it all the time. So you're just playing this, this battle. Um, but it, it, I do think it takes, when it has been specifically emotional, physical, sexual, whatever abuse it has been, I do think it takes help to find that self-love. It is very, very difficult to get it on your own because you need the tools. Um, They were actually really quite simple tools, but you need to recognize the thought patterns that are going on your head to know to use the tools. And what tools have been most helpful for you then? You know, so the coaching, counselling. So the stuff we did with that, um, so some things from Pia Melody, which is PIA and the Melody. Um, so we would do things. So again, with the inner child, the inner teen and the functional adult, we would call in my mother. We would call in my father. We would call in whoever was required in inverted commas to sit in that chair because I can't tell, I can't speak to them about this because it didn't happen as far as they're concerned. As far as they're concerned, nothing happened to me or any of us. And I would have them sitting there and whichever one needed to say whatever they needed to say got to say it. So be it my inner child or my functional adult would let rip um, and get it all off my chest. So there was that. I did a lot of inner child work, which is really incredibly healing and I will still do it. Um, People might notice that I sometimes have my hand on my chest like I'm holding a baby and I'm I'm just calming her. 
Um, and I, I talk about her like she's the third person because it's how I feel in a way, like she's a small child inside me. And it, it's very, very powerful. So the second I know I'm going into a situation where I'm going to feel a little uncomfortable. So contrary, again, to everyone's opinion of me, I'm actually on the introvert side, mm-hmm. even though I'm very loud. So I hate networking a room. So if I know I'm like at a conference when I'm speaking that the next morning at breakfast, when I have to walk into the room, I don't like it. There's always a moment. So you you find I walk in and I'm just, I'm tapping my chest. Like I got you. We're okay here. We can do this. We can walk into the breakfast room. No one is going to jump on us. (laughs) It's like this kind of bizarre situation. So I've learned that. And then I think um, as far as being aware of your thought patterns, and I think we should all do this. So our ego is there to tear us down and protect us, okay? It's going to stop us from doing something that's going to place us in potential fear. So, you know, it'd be like, Phil, you could say to me, oh, Katrina, you're fabulous. And it's immediately going, you're right, that sort of stuff. So being aware of, okay, I am going to go and speak on a stage in front of 7,000 people and my inner voice is going to go, yeah, for sure, and you're going to fail at that. And I can then just go, well, isn't that interesting? And what about the time I spoke in front of that many, that many, and that many? And then it quietens. And that's been one of my greatest ones. And I tell lots of people that one. It's just to go, isn't that interesting? And give it evidence to the contrary. So not argue with it, but just, isn't that interesting? And then, so it's, it's quite calming because you're, you're just being aware of your thought. Mm. instead of letting it dominate which they do because <laughs> its job is to stop you from doing anything scary <laughs> yeah so the phrase that i um often use is that you know emotions tell you that there's something important to your welfare happening yes yes you know whether i've interpreted that in the right way or not something else but there's something important to my welfare happening mm. and i need to make a decision about um what i do with that mm. how important is it really Mm. Yeah, if you're about to go and jump off a cliff, you know, you're standing on the edge of that cliff and it's stopping you from doing that, it's a really great voice. <laughs> but if it is just stopping you from being all you can be, then it just needs some evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and, and I get that because sometimes I, you know, particularly at the moment I'm writing a book, so I've, there are gaps between my delivering training. And, and just before I go to do it, the voice is going, what are you doing? You have no clue what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, interesting but I delivered training like two weeks ago on this and I gave training to this person on this and this and this and this and, and suddenly like, yeah, calm. <laughs> it's, it's funny like that. I also find it interesting that, um, and, and I guess I'm, you know, I risked doing a bit of Beverly Night with the shoulda, woulda, coulda thing, but <laughs> you know, when people are saying to themselves, I shouldn't feel this way or I, sh- I shouldn't do that or I couldn't do that. Why not? It's just energy. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. Mm. You know, in terms of it's, what's happening is that energy is telling you that something important to your welfare is, is occurring mm. and you just need to decide if you want you know if you want to listen to it what you want to do with it yeah actually yes i do or no i don't and i think it's funny because when i was growing up um i was always told oh crocodile tears um and i i would i would have to say i'm on the most of this conversation i've been very close to tears i feel i it, it means so much to me to talk about it and to be allowed to talk about it um, but I was, you know, I told you I'd, I'd been over to my flat this morning and driving back, my sat nav sent me a really strange way. So there must have been some accident in the A2 and I came back via Woolwich. 
And of course, I just suddenly realized I'm next to the army barracks. And I was until recently dating a double amputee. And I just suddenly burst into tears from absolutely nowhere. It's been six months. You think I'd be fine, you know, really? Nope. Suddenly I'm sobbing. And I just thought, you know what? It's just energy. You're just missing him. That's okay. Just let it out. And I just let it out and I got home and I'm like in a completely different mood. But if I'd bottled it, then that's where the danger comes in. And I think one of the beautiful things and, and where I feel so incredibly grateful to, you know, Richard who got me to Bridget and Bridget who got me to Michelle who started my journey of healing because she was the one that cracked through the defensiveness. And there have been others since. There's always been someone appear at the right time to help me with all sorts of other stuff. I've done loads of, you know, angelic kind of stuff and spiritual stuff as well. Um, but I feel so incredibly grateful that I have given myself permission to heal, that I have been brave enough to heal, that I've given myself the permission to have self-care because all I need to do is look at my sister who is too terrified to do it and doesn't feel in the moment, is too scared to feel in the moment and, you know, self-medicates. And I, I just have to go, thank goodness, thank goodness I have been brave enough and I can't make her. I can't force her into help. I can't, you know, put her on a plane and bring her over here and stick her in front of Michelle. I can't do that. She has to want to do it. And I just, I feel very honoured for that. And I know what I just said kind of contradicts what I was saying earlier, but I think sometimes if you go about helping someone from a workplace point of view, they're a lot more open to it, whereas my sister's going into it knowing it will help, it will sort the child abuse. And she thinks it's ripping a Band-Aid off and it's not. It's layers of an onion. It's literally those really thin little layers. It's like that. You, you, nobody rips Band-Aids off. <laughs> you can't. You just can't. You've got to – and, and it'll keep bubbling. There'll still be stuff bubble up. Yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> just have interest, is it? Mm. Um, um, yeah, you're happy, to, happy for you to tell me that if I'm talking out my ass, but <laughs> with that high expectation stuff that you were talking about earlier on and then you host an event where, you know, People come along and do amazing five-minute, you know, kind of talks and presentations. But there's a whole load of logistical stuff that goes on behind the scenes. You know, you need, people need to get the slides to you. You need to get the slides in the right order. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you need to get it into the, to the right, you know, running order of the speakers that's going to be happening. You need to make sure all the transitions are working and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you then? Because I see, I find that really easy. Up, I, I was I was dead late getting my slides to you. Yeah, you you might have you might have got the. You know, I've pissed Katrina off. Yeah, I think I might have said you were fucked a few times through <laughs> that. But anyway, moving on. By the way, just so you're aware, Phil Wilcox does not answer text messages. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> until it suits him. No, I'm kidding. Um, see, it's really funny, right? So when you were saying that, that the most beautiful thing that has ever been sent to me about that event was from Julie Drybra. And she's, I'm so sorry, I just bastardized your surname, Julie. But she said to me, you give people permission to fuck up. And I do. I create an event where for five minutes you could get up and completely screw it up and I'd be perfectly fine with that because I want to give people an opportunity to speak and I want to give them an opportunity to be heard and it is a difficult format. I keynote all around the planet and find that format difficult. You know, give me 45 minutes on stage, no problem. Five minutes, oh God. Um, so that side, no, don't care. I have no expectations. Get up and just do your best. I don't care. You know, Amanda Aerosmith, she sang and her, she, she was struggling with laryngitis. Didn't care. It was still awesome. Your rap was awesome. It's just, it, it doesn't matter. 
But as long as I know that I'm going to turn up and the slides will be in order and the slides will go. And you know, sometimes they don't. You've seen them. They didn't run to time. And I'm like, oh, well, I think we're on time now. You know, it's like, Mm. it's a great event. But I think because I go in with that attitude of I just want to give people a chance and I don't care if you're a brand spanking new speaker. So it's funny. And I think maybe that's where I'm less of a perfectionist now. I mean, certainly if I look at my home now, I mean, I'm currently sitting on the floor staring at a pile of washing (laughs) that should not be sitting on the chair across from me. I deliberately came into my bedroom, so it was quiet. Um, That would not have been there 15 years ago. My place was so pristine, whereas actually now I've kind of relaxed. So that probably is some of the healing. So perhaps my standards have dropped except to my clients. It hasn't, for me, delivering training. And that to me is a little bit different to the event because of the way the event is. I think the audience is very forgiving about that five minute format. And like it could, they could fail dismally here, but we don't care. We're here to support. And I think that's why I, I don't, I care less. No, it's all right. That was a very long winded answer to quite a short question. <laughs> but it still manifests itself for you in the work that you do with your clients in terms of those expectations, the high expectations for yourself. Yeah. But at the same time, I've learned to play. So I was delivering some training yesterday for Lionbridge and um, I know Stephen Kosakao knows me really well. So he's very forgiving of, you know, Katrina is Katrina. Um, and I did flick the page and I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I haven't changed the search string. So in the book wasn't the one that showed in the screenshot. I just not changed the, the bit that I typed out. It was just a little accident and it, it just didn't mean anything. But at the same time, I could sort of go, because it was doing it via webinar, hello, anyone out there? You guys are being really quiet, you know, trying to get people to respond and be really playful with it. Whereas I would not have done that 15 years ago or 10 years ago because I would have been too scared to have any personality. Okay. I'd have got in trouble. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? It is. So in terms of, in terms of what helped you, mm. and, you know, going back to the conversation we've had before about, you know, there were certain leaders that did and didn't. Mm. So coaching, that additional support, that helped you. But you know, in terms of support the organisations can put in place, one of the challenges of that around is around cash and, and you know, what you know, what money's available and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we also talked about you know, a friend of yours that's suffering with chronic pain and, you know, and how there's actually something that can be done within the organisation that doesn't cost anything, which is yeah. about, you know, taking a look at that flexible working approach. So if you're in an organisation then mm-hmm. and you listen to this podcast, let's say you are, um, and you you know someone in the workplace or you're aware of someone who may be displaying those extremes that you were talking about earlier on. So, you know, if somebody is, is you know, be on the way to becoming that, vic- that what, uh, what was it called? Oh, Victor over. But if there's one thing that you could do then to help those people, mm. you know, is that, is that make it okay for people to do self-care? Yeah, and I think though Victor's over have done the work to heal. So I would still, I'm sorry, Karen, if you're listening to this, I would call her a victim of, she is still in flight and fright constantly. She's like, and, and it shows. Um, my eldest brother is just permanently angry. Um, and because they haven't, they haven't dealt with it. Um, so the reason I say Victor over or survivor is because I've, I've done the work to come out the other side. And I just encourage everybody, why I'm so open about it, is just start. It starts with one tiny baby step. It is nowhere near as terrifying as you think. And when you come out, you're just so light and so liberated. And so it's like literally light. But it was funny when you were saying that, where I thought you were perhaps going to allude was 
now, potentially that person could work from home. So if you feel that they won't be open or you really are not in a position as a company to invest in them with some coaching or some therapy or whatever it is that they need, can they work remotely so that they have less impact on the entire team? I could have worked from home just fine. I was doing recruitment. You can do that anywhere. You can do that standing on my head. Um, So actually that is a solution. And I would have been a lot happier because I'm – I don't like being around that many people all day. It does my head in because of that introvert side of me. So actually that would have been a great solution. One of the um, one of the most profound conversations I think I've ever had was um, when I when my first foray into the public sector. Um, and uh, so I went from, went from private sector to the public sector went to join a local authority. And I remember the head of learning or head of, learning recruitment I can't remember what she was at the time but either way um on, on my first day she said to me how is it you how do you want me to lead you mm. what is it that you need to allow you to be at your best um and I want you to take a few days to think about it you know so this is you know she asked me on the Monday and she you know, said I want to talk about it on the Friday mm. and then you know, when we come back on Friday let me know what you think and I'm not going to guarantee that I'll be able to deliver what you want or what you're asking for but what I want is some clarification yeah yeah, some clarification from you about, you know, what is it that's going to allow you to be mm. at your best? Mm. Yeah, so how do I need to lead you to let that happen? Yeah. And I would say 80% of what I asked for, I got. Mm. You know, and I said some things like, you know, I'm going to be really needy. You know, <laughs> I, I've, you know, for the first two or three months, I'm going to be coming to you a lot and, you know, saying, keep checking in again. Is the, is what I'm doing all right? Mm. Is it okay? Is, am I giving you what you want? Am I doing it in the right way? Am I doing mm-hmm. it in the right way? Am I, you know, have I phrased this correctly or whatever that might be? But if you can see me through that, then I'll just leave you alone after that because it's yeah. about me building that depth of understanding of what works best. And then once I'm clear on that, you can just leave me alone and I'll fly type thing. Yeah. So yeah, if you can support me through my, mm. you know, my needy bit, then not, you know, leave me alone, and then I'll just crack on after that. So did that come from fear of being found out, or fear of being in trouble? Um, yeah, I just didn't want to get it wrong. I think. Yeah, so fear of being in trouble. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's it's always it's always comes from fear, which is like really quite unhealthy, but it does. <laughs> you know, we just our employment feels so fragile. And it does, yeah, you're right, because yeah, we're so quick to catastrophize, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, so if I get this wrong, yeah. I'll be out the door, I won't be able to pay the mortgage or the school fees or the rent or the... I'll be like, oh my God, I won't be able to eat. I'll be under London Bridge with a begging bowl. Yeah, I know, my God, our brains go straight there, don't they? Absolutely. Whereas, you know, we could actually walk straight into another job, which is better suited to us. But no, no, we go straight to we're unemployed and out in the street and, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, put the, I put this wrong figure at the end of the mm. report and therefore, you know, oh no, everything's going to go wrong. Yeah. I know it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And it's funny because I would have said, um, "Yeah, let me know what you want, but then leave me alone." Like literally, just you know, my expectation for you these first three months is this, but then just let me lo- like leave me alone because I just hate being micromanaged. Um, I just yeah, I can't handle that. I still can't handle that. <laughs> I'm 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 such a self starter. I just don't need it. So I find it really belittling. So. Because what I found really interesting was, 
you know, one of the things I said to you know, said to Alison, what I like is for for us to have a, a check in every Friday afternoon. You know, like an an, an end of week, yeah, um, an end of week debrief where we can you know debrief what I've been doing, what I've been you know, going yeah. going about, and how I've been going about it, and yeah. And then, so we started doing it. And then after a few weeks, she said, you know what, Phil, I can't sustain this anymore. Um, I know something that you need. I know something that you want, but I just can't sustain it. I can't sustain giving you, you know, this hour and a half to two hours every Friday afternoon. I, I you know, I understand mm. why you want it and why you need it, but it's just not something I can do. So can we renegotiate what that is? Mm. You know, I, yeah, I get the one need, but I can't sustain it. So we need to change the approach so that it works for me as well as it works for you. And I was like, yeah, cool, absolutely, yeah, yeah, more than happy to to, to do that. Yeah. You know, because it needs to work for both of us. Mm. I'd probably be more inclined to do that now, but I certainly wouldn't have done that before I'd done the work. So, sort of different. Okay. So I want to bring us together then and start to to wrap it up. So is there anything else then that you're thinking or feeling or want to say? I think... I just, yeah, take take the time to get underneath that prickly person. So if you are managing somebody who has these extremes, try not to think they're a lost cause. Just try and just try and get underneath. Try different tactics. Try, you know, what can you do differently to perhaps get a different response? Um. You know, I mean, it's good for your management, isn't it, to stretch yourself. So rather than constantly doing the same thing, you know, which is what most do because they get frustrated and time poor and all of that. But, yeah, try. I, I guess it's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Um, perhaps it is you just have to manage them out. But is it there are things we could do here, things that are free, let them work from home, or is it, you know, what can I do? What can I do differently? Maybe ask the individual. Yeah. What can I do? It's a really different approach. It's a, you, you almost be vulnerable because they're feeling vulnerable. That's why they're so defensive. So it's like show that. How do you need me to be? What do you need from me here? And, and like you got, and that kind of shocked you in a way, didn't it? And then she came back and said, actually, I can't do this. I need to try something else. Can we tinker it? But you, you had her respect by then because she'd given you the time. So, yeah, I think that. Yeah. So that, that plays with all that you know kind of the the notion of wanting to save a lot or to help you know to really help so i i know something for me is you know i used to want to save people and that's the thing i think that's what you're alluding to there it's, you know it's not about it's not your job what you know it's not about managers fixing people or saving people no i can't get my sister who i adore to therapy if she doesn't want to go i can't get her there i can't make her i can i can coax her I can tell her what the reality of it is I can do all of that I can give her full transparency of what it's about but I can't make her do that and 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 this applies for everything you know relationships everything you cannot change another person they have to change another person themselves but you know and again I still I don't think it's the manager's job to do because what I'm talking about we're talking about you know child abuse we're talking about seriously defensive stuff I don't think that most managers have got the skills to deal with that um, that's why I keep saying bring in somebody outside who does have the skills to deal with that. Um, but the person does, in a way, have to be open to it. Um, and they may not change. And then if they don't, well, then you do have to manage them out of the business. Um, or fire them, which is the shorthand way of saying that. <laughs> um, it's cha- it's challenging. So something you alluded to earlier on 
you know, is about that, um, you know, that awareness, mm. you know, from somebody to say, this isn't working for me. Um, yeah, let's yeah. let's find a way that this works for for both of us. Yeah, you know, let's find a you know, the, the, this being here isn't part of the long term goal, and let's just find a different way forward. Yeah, I I mean, and I guess if if ever, anyone got anything out of this is just that if somebody is reacting on those extremes, there, there's a really strong reason for it. You know, it, it comes from somewhere. Um, you know, I don't feel for one minute you can say to your employee tell me about your childhood um, because they're probably not going to do that. Um, you may end up hearing about it though. If, if, you know, if you're quite social with them anyway, they might just open up. But there is always, if somebody is reacting in those extremes, there's something tough that's happened to them. It's not normal to be so incredibly defensive that that's how you react all the time. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully we haven't made any of the listeners upset. <laughs> I hope not. No, it's been a it's been a really um we've been a really good chat. We've been matter of fact at times. Um, you know, I think yeah. we've been respectful as well. And can I just say if if you know, if I hadn't had the twenty one years, if I hadn't chosen this this life, I would not be resilient and as independent and as strong as I wouldn't be all the things that I am and I wouldn't be making the difference that I'm now making in the HR community, for example, without it, that, that just, it, it has given me so much like creativity, working ways around problems. Um, oh my goodness. I'm so intuitive. So there are so many gifts that come with it as well, but you don't necessarily see it. So that's where someone can guide you to seeing all of that and life just transforms. It's when you go from that victim to victor. It's quite extraordinary. So, well, that sounds like a wonderful place to um, to end the podcast on, doesn't it? Thank you. I'm Sorry. about to cry. <laughs> I've just welled up again. <laughs> so I'll say thank you very much, then, Katrina. Thank you so much for your time, for your honesty, for sharing your story, um, and you know, I just you were so grateful for you sharing your story. So I'll bring it together and close it off. Um, and say Katrina Collier thank you so much for being on the Emotional Work Podcast yeah and thank you for giving me a platform to do so Phil I really appreciate it that's been a pleasure you've been listening to the Emotional Work Podcast written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox edited together by Simon Leverton you can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox Thanks for listening.